Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I am so happy that you have joined me this beautiful Monday in July. Um, it's uh, a little bit cloudy out here in the Pacific Northwest, but it's uh, it's always beautiful in the Pacific Northwest, so I can't complain. I love the clouds. I, I was listening to a show the other day on the radio, and uh, there was a, a wonderful bit about uh, written by a young man who used to live in Boise, Idaho, and he decided to move to California where there was constant sunshine and, and, uh, he actually got tired of all the blue sky and the weather never changing and he moved back to Idaho and he had written a wonderful article about how important weather is and what, what the rain and the storms and the tornadoes and the lightning and the thunder and what all of that does and how we need that for, you know, for the soil, the nutrients, clears the air, cleans the air, ozone, all kinds of wonderful things. And it really reminded me of what my show is all about, the heaven sent and bent, about how we need sorrow. We actually need pain in our life for us to recognize the joy. And that really says exactly what I'm going to be talking to my guest today, Brian Copeland. And Brian has seen that. He has seen the sorrow. He has seen um, uh, struggles. He's had struggles in his life. And that has given him the ability to really recognize the joy in his life. And uh, Brian is it just has an amazing story. And I'm not even going to try to tell it. I'm going to let Brian tell it to you. But, you know, just to kind of let you know, Brian is boy, where do we start? Uh, actor, author, uh, stand up comic, radio host. Uh, he just has his uh, resume just is an arm's length at least. And so I'm going to welcome Brian on the show and have him introduce himself because I am just so excited to talk with, with him. So Brian, how are you this morning? I am wonderful this morning. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. And I don't know why, but of course, I feel a kinship for you because you're one of my brother's best friends. And um, I had a nice chat with my brother, Steve. This morning, I was so excited to talk to you and had to ask him, you know, how long have you known Brian and how did you guys get to be, you know, great friends? And I mean, you guys are like those those little boys, 18 years old, that have decided that you're going to be a stand up comic. And you kind of started out together, didn't you? No, Steve started before I did. Um, I, I met Steve when I was 18 and Steve was, I think, about 28. And uh, oh, OK. Yeah, I just started stand-up. Um, I started stand-up the week after I graduated from high school with a club, opened up the street from my house. And I, it was like my, I think my first audition in front of an audience, and Steve was on the bill. And uh, and he took me under his wing. He he mentored me. Uh, Steve, Steve is oh. my brother. Uh, oh, he, that's he, so he, cool. He, he, I always call him my brother. My, my children call him Steve. That we, We've been friends for, so that's 1983. That's how far back oh. Steve and I go. That's crazy. Well, that's what he was saying. He's actually a godfather to one of your children. Yeah, he's godfather to my oldest, uh, my oldest son, Adam. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just feel like you're part of the family because, because of your relationship with Steve. But, um, I'm so excited and, and grateful that you're taking this time out of your day to chat with me. And I want to give as much time as possible for you to, um, 
promote your GoFundMe program that you have running. But let's start out by just talking a little bit. Uh, your book, Not a Genuine Black Man. I loved, yes. I loved the story behind that because, um, I can't even imagine, uh, when, when, when people talk about having an identity crisis or not knowing who you are or, or being able to embrace your heritage, you know, I mean, I have a strong Irish, uh, English, German heritage, and I can say that with pride. Nobody goes back to me and says, oh, you're German. Oh, okay, Nazi. You know, no one does that to me. People can, yeah. can, 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 can talk about their heritage and it really kind of gives them a sense of pride in who they are. But and in more, your more, case, I was going to say more than that, more than that, Renee, nobody knows you're German or that you're, you're English or anything unless you tell them. And see, exactly. That's the difference. Exactly. You know, walking down the street, nobody's going to point you and go, "Oh, she's German." Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> I did have. I did have. Okay, where were we? Well, we were in Italy. I did have the Italian tour guy say to me, "Are you Russian?" I was like, <laughs> "Nope," but I want to talk about that. Why you think that? But let's go on. But no, you're exactly right. And and uh, I, you know, my my family and I lived in Northeast Portland for a while. And in the summertime, I would take my children to all of the parks that were in the Northeast Portland area because I soon discovered that they gave free lunches to all of the, the people that were in the park. And I was like, ah, I want free lunch. I had, you know, five <laughs> children at the time. And so I remember one time sitting in this park. We were in this little wading pool. And and all of a sudden I looked around. I realized I was the only white person in this park. And it really it gave me that sense of, oh, my gosh, this is what it feels like. I mean, not even a tenth, but you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. we just take it. We, do, we just take for granted um, how we feel. But tell us about how your book, Not a Genuine Black Man, how how that came to be. Well, it was a, it was a play first, and um, uh, it's it's an interesting story. It's it's a ride I've been on for for quite a while, and uh, we we go out to uh, to to networks to uh, to talk to networks about uh, genuine as a series in about two weeks. Uh, oh, we're going to go to NBC, and I think we're going to CBS. So the two, the two, uh, the two uh, uh, broadcast networks we're, we're talking to. Uh, the way that it started was um, back in uh, in 2001. Um, you know, I, I had been married for for 12 years, three children. They were at the time, they were 10, 8, and 4. Um, and I uh, suddenly found myself, you know, I'd been traveling, uh, working as a stand-up, work, just like your brother, working clubs all across the country. Uh, I'd been on the road opening for Smokey Robinson and Dionne Warwick and Ray Charles and Elizabeth Franklin and Adley Cole and Ringo Starr and all these folks. And then I went through this divorce, and I had, I, I suddenly found my, and I got custody of the kids. So instead of wow. being on the road, I, I, I was suddenly Mr. Mom. You know, I was packing the lunches and driving the carpool and chaperoning the field trips and, and doing the class parties and all of that stuff. And I, I, I knew I, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know exactly what it was I wanted to do. Then 9-11 hit. And mm -hmm. when 9-11 hit, there were a lot of, of stories that just broke our hearts. Um, but the one that got to me, I, I remember I was, I was uh, you know, we had the TV on, you know, constantly. You know, it was yes. on for, for a week straight. Uh, and on that night, I'm watching CNN. And I saw the interview that they did with the uh, the CEO of uh, of Cantor Fitzgerald, which is a brokerage firm that was in the World Trade Center. I can't remember which tower it was in. Mm -hmm. And uh, the CEO was talking about how 
uh, on you know he was normally the first one at his desk. He was the first one there and the last one to leave, as any good boss is. And this particular day, he came in late because it was his son's first day of kindergarten, and he wanted to take his son to school for his first day. So he wasn't at his desk when the plane hit, but everybody else was. And mm. he lost something like 98% of his employees. And I remember they went to commercial, and before they went to commercial, they showed just a, a montage of, of of pictures of his employees, you know, uh, office parties and, you know, them with their families and on vacation and stuff. And I looked at these pictures and I thought, wow, you know, these, uh, you know, these people got up this morning and they kissed their husbands and their wives and their children and they said, see you tonight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this Saturday we're going to go camping. And, uh, you know, next summer I'm going to take you to Hawaii. And, you know, someday we're going to go to Europe. And, you know, someday I'm going to teach you how to fish. And someday I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run a marathon and someday, someday, someday. And mm-hmm. then they sat down at their desk and they were gone. And I started to cry. And I realized, God, we all have things that we say that we're going to do someday. Uh, and to be crass, quite frankly, you never know when your plane is going to hit your tower. Right. That's a crass way of putting it, but that's it. And I thought, right. at that moment, I, I said, okay, I have all these things I said I'm going to do someday, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do them. And I pulled out a, a, a yellow legal pad, and at the top of that, I wrote someday list. And today, that would be called a bucket list, which is funny because I ended up being that movie. I know, I heard that. I'm anxious to hear yeah. about that, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, so I, I call it okay. my, my, my someday list. And at, on the list, I made a list of everything that I always said I was going to do someday. And at the top of the list was to do a one-man show. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I, I had spent, as I said, from the, uh, let's see, in, in, in 2001, I was 30, 36, 37. I was 37. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, I've been doing stand-up, as I said, since I was 18. Stand-up's all about joke, 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 joke. You know, it's right. last per minute. If they're, if, they're not, if, they're, if they're not laughing, then you're dying. But right. with a one-man show, you can do things. You can do characters. You can tell a story. You know, you're in a theater as opposed to in a comedy club. And I decided that was the number one thing on my list. So um, about a, a couple of weeks go by, and uh, I'm thinking about, okay, I want to do a one-man show, but I have no idea what I'm going to do with that. Now, I do a radio show uh, I've done for 24 years now on, on Sundays on, on KGO Radio in San Francisco, which is the Bay Area ABC affiliate. ABC affiliate. And I had on, on my, my program a few weeks after that, Carl Reiner. And Carl, you know, Carl's one of my comedy, you know, heroes. Oh, and, my gosh, uh, yeah. And during commercial break, I said to Carl, I go, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to write this, this, this play, and, but I have no idea what to write about, you know. And, and Carl said, he gave me advice that changed my life. Carl said, you know, every writer performer goes through that, comes to that crossroads at some point. He goes, for me, it was 1959 because I'd been with Sid Caesar for, for nine years through show shows and Caesar's Hour and Caesar's Hour had just ended its run. And, uh, and I was thinking I wanted to do something, but I have no idea what I want to do. So uh, somebody gave him a copy of Fred Allen's book, Treadmill to Oblivion. Fred Allen, the great radio comedian, another one of my Mm -hmm. comedy heroes. Fred, Mm -hmm. uh, for people who don't remember Fred, he's probably most known for his feud on radio with Jack Benny. He was Mm -hmm. brilliant. He he was just an acerbic wit, just just a brilliant writer and great wit. He's the one who said that television is called a medium because nothing is ever really well done. (laughs) And uh, and, and my, my, my favorite Fred Allen line is Fred Allen said, a celebrity is someone who works hard all of his life to be famous so that he can wear dark glasses and hope not to be recognized. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and Fred, um, 
wrote in the in the the, the, the preface to this book, which I've since read, um, that uh, he got the he wanted to he, he was approached by a publisher to write a book, didn't know what to write about, and he got the advice: find the piece of ground that you on that nobody else does, and write from there. And so Fred Fred thought, what's my piece of ground? Well. I spent 20 years in network radio from the 30s to, like, 1949 uh, in network radio uh, dealing with, um, with idiots in, in uh, you know, executives at NBC who were idiots who didn't understand comedy and didn't understand entertainment, you know, who would mess with what it is that I did. Um, so that became Treadmill to Oblivion. What Treadmill to Oblivion is about is all of his years in radio and happened to, you know, he'd, he'd spend all this time writing all of this brilliant material. He and... Uh, his, 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 one of the writers of the show, his head writer on that show, was uh, was Herman Woke, who, after Herman Woke left him, wrote The Winds of War and The Cave Music and other things. And yeah. um, so he, he would call these guys molehill men, the, the executives, because he goes, you know, they'd come into, eight, they'd come into their, to their desk at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they'd find a molehill man until 5 o'clock to turn it into a mountain. So that became so that became the book. That was Fred's piece of ground. So, so fast forward, 1959, Carl reads the book, and Carl says, what's my piece of ground? Well, I'm a married comedy writer living in New Rochelle with my wife and my kids, and I write for a comedy show in New York. And that idea became the Dick Van Dyke Show. Mm. So, so, so Carl said, what you have to do is you have to find your own piece of ground. And, and I said, I don't know what that is. And he said, well, that's what you've got to figure out. So, um, so I took a couple weeks off. I, I, I had taken a few weeks off on the program. I'm, I'm trying to think of what's my piece of ground, what's my piece of ground. I come back into the station after being gone for a couple weeks, and there's this big stack of mail, listener mail. And, and in talk radio, uh, the only mail that you get that's snail mail, like through the physical post office, comes from only two sources. They're old ladies <laughs> and, and, and whack jobs. Old ladies and nuts. <laughs> Nobody else writes you. Everybody else is, is emails, but other than that, it's, you know, it's actually writing a letter or mailing it, it it's, it's senior citizens and lunatics. So like, I, I, <laughs> exactly. I, so this one letter stood out to me, this one envelope, because it was typed with a manual typewriter. I could tell it was oh, a manual typewriter. And I was thinking, wow. You know, where do you find a ribbon for a typewriter in the 21st century even? I got to open it. Yeah. So I open this letter, and it's unsigned, and it says, As an African-American, I am disgusted every time I hear your voice because you are not a genuine black man. And I thought, bingo, that's it. That is my piece of ground. Because I've heard that nonsense for for most of my adult life, you know, from mm-hmm. African-Americans who say, Well, you're black and skin, but you're not really black. And from white people who say, Well, you will say the same kind of thing to me. So I started to think, okay, why is it that people say that? And I went through this whole litany, this in the play, about, you know, okay, you know, I, I can't swim, that's black, but I can't <laughs> play basketball either, that's not even yeah. male, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't talk ghetto, you know, when I hear the word axe, I think of it as a noun. You know, it's not a verb, <laughs> I'm going to go axe my mother. What are you, Lizzie Borden? Get away from me. So, <laughs> right. So then I thought, okay, why is it that, 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 I, that, that I hear this nonsense, and, and it boiled down to my upbringing. From when I was eight years old in 1972, my mother, um, my mother was a single mom. My mother and my grandmother, and my my uh, three little sisters, and I moved to to San Leandro, California, which is a suburb right next door to Oakland. Now, at the time, 1972, Oakland was half black, but San Leandro was 99.99% white. So uh, that is the environment in which I grew up. So I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a story about what it's like to be different, about what it's like to be the only one. Because at, at some mm-hmm. point in your life, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you are the only one, the only man, mm-hmm. the only woman, the only, the only gay person, the only straight person, the only Jew, the only Christian, whatever. And how mm-hmm. do you navigate those waters 
when you are the one who's different. So, mm-hmm. so okay, so that's my piece of ground. I figure out that's what I'm going to do. So I would get up in the morning. I would fix my kids' breakfast. I'd walk them to school. Then I would sit in this little cafe by my house, Sabino's, with uh, with marble composition notebooks and number two natural wood pencils. And I, I, I wrote every story I could think about from growing up uh, about what it was like to be different. And some were really funny. Some were really sad. A lot of them were painful. I found out there was a lot of stuff that I um, that I had blocked out because mm-hmm. it was so incredibly painful. So mm-hmm. this process went on for about about six or eight months or so, and I ended up with about a dozen or so of these marble composition notebooks written, you know, 200 pages front and back of, of each page. Then I figured, okay, I got enough raw material. Um, why don't I go to the San Leandro Library and, uh, and look at my, the, the, the microfilm of the old newspapers, just kind of see what was going on in town. Uh, in that era, just to give me some context. So I go to the, to the library, and I talk to Cindy Simmons, who's since become one of my best friends in the world. She was the head librarian, and I told her, I'm, I'm writing a, 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 a play about what it was like to grow up in San Leandro at a time when there weren't many black people here. And she goes, I got something that, that you need to see. And she takes me back into the back of the library and opens up a file cabinet, pulls out this yellowing stack of typewritten papers. And she goes, read this. And what it was, was a, it was a term paper written for a sociology class at what was then California State University Hayward. It's now, uh, it's now Cal State East Bay. And it was called How San Leandro's Ten Homeowners Associations Keep the City an All-White Ghetto. And I went, Oh my what? gosh. So I read this, I read through this thing, and what I find out was that San Leandro, at the time we came here, had a national reputation as one of the most racist suburbs in America. And, and what the deal was is that it was a, a town that was, was built on white flight. Um, after World War II, Oakland uh, started to get a really large black population, and in part because of blockbusting, where, you know, after World War II, you had all these African Americans who, who uh, were from the South uh, who were working in the shipyards. And then the war ended, they thought, well, I'm not going to go back to, you know, I'm not going back to, to, to Mississippi and drinking out of a separate water fountain. Why? So they right. settled in Oakland, and so you had these realtors then, you know, these, these folks needed a place to live. So these realtors would go into a white neighborhood in Oakland, and they would offer a homeowner some ridiculous price for his house, maybe twice what the house was worth. And, you mm. know, the, the homeowner thinks he won the lottery, so he'd sell it. Then the realtor would either sell or rent the home to the first black family he could find, and within six months, every house on the street would be for sale. Within six wow. months, every house in the street made for sale. So then he would, the realtor would come in and scoop up all these homes at a discount and sell them or rent them to African-American families. And so all these white people who were trying to run away from blacks needed a place to go, so that's where San Leandro came in. Now, uh, at this time, race covenants, um, the, you know, race covenants started in San Francisco, for God's sakes, you know, where, where they, to keep the Chinese out. When you know, the right. came to build railroads and stuff, and so they would would sell homes, and they would put in the in the in the deed that no one other than Caucasians could live in the homes. So, in 1949, the Supreme Court invalidated them. So there was this scheme that was that was developed by this um, this. Uh, I did a lot of research on this. I was just fascinated when I found out. What yeah. This, this this realtor named M. C. Friel, who I'm trying to find, still trying to find out what happened to this guy. He's lost to history. He, he came up with this scheme of homeowners associations that were like pseudo-corporations. 
And what, the way they worked was an association, you know, you, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, live in a place with an association. The association tells you, what, you know, how, how, you know, how your fences can be and, and what color your house can be. And these, they have certain rules in every association. Well, what these worked, in addition to everything else, is they could decide who and who was not uh, a suitable homeowner to purchase in that association. So he set these things up in San Leandro in 1949. There were ten of them. And the realtors were on board. They knew that they could not show homes to African Americans uh, or, or, or people of color, uh, so they, they wouldn't. Uh, each one of the homeowners associations had a city council member, so they controlled the city government. And, uh, and the entire thing was enforced by the San Leandro Police Department. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what the police department would do is at the open San Leandro border, they used to call it the invisible wall. Because uh, a cop used to sit at the border, and if you were a person of color, even little kids on their bikes, the police mm-hmm. would follow them until they were so intimidated that they'd turn around and go back across the border to Oakland, or they would uh, find a pretext to stop them. So this went on for decades in, in right. this town. Uh, and again, I didn't know any of this at, at the time. I just knew that we had had a hard time. So I right. said, okay, now... So now my story has changed. Now, in addition to just being a, uh, to being a story about what it's like to be different and how to navigate those waters, it's now also a story about the evolution of the city. So I, I found a, a director, a little theater in San Francisco called The Marsh, um, which is, now has a re- national reputation for developing solo work. And uh, I, I met this director, David Ford, who I'd heard a lot of great things about, but told him my idea, and he said, let's write this. So we wrote it, we developed it, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a dramedy. You know, uh, what I did, right. I watched the, when I was writing it, I wrote the, I watched the first two seasons of All in the Family because I oh. wanted those rhythms like Norman Lear had where, you know, remember right. the, all those great Norman Lear shows in the 70s, you know, um, it was really, really funny and then he just got raped. Remember that? When yes. The, you know, yes. And, and then it was funny again. And then, you know, okay. good times, hilarious. And then all of a sudden JJ gets shot. Um, you right. know, Vaughn has an abortion. All these like heavy things and you're laughing and then you're kicked in the guts and you're laughing again. So I wrote right. it with those with those rhythms. Okay, so the show opened in uh, in in San Francisco in, in April of 2004. It was supposed to be a uh, a six week run. So you know wow. it, it was different from anything I'd ever done because again it it was drama. It, one you were literally crying one minute and laughing so hard you can't breathe the next. And the right. first night there were like ten people there. The next night there were like fifteen. The next night there were like thirty. Then the critics came and they just raved about it and the show. Um, you, you couldn't get a ticket to the show for the next two and a half years in San Francisco. It, it was sold out wow. like that. That's so, amazing. So That's the, amazing. It ended up becoming the longest running one man show in, in, in San Francisco history. So, so about about uh, about a month or so into into the run of the show, after all the reviews came out, I get a call from um, from uh, Amy Rennert, who uh, runs the Amy Rennert Le- a Literary Agency, and Amy had been a producer on my very first television show uh, back in the early 90s for, for PBS here in San Francisco. And she goes, hey, you know, I was reading about your show. I think it might be a good book. And I go, really? She goes, yeah, she goes, write a proposal. let's write a proposal. So we wrote a proposal for the book, and, and it was a bidding war, and it sold in three days. Um, and because what was interesting was what I found out later on, Hyperion ended up buying it. And what I found out later on was, is that um, the reason there was a bidding war was the, the, the agents at Hyperion who were looking at it, the, uh, the, the publishers, uh, one of the, the, the women on the group goes, oh, my God, I'm Asian, and my family was the only Asian family in our neighborhood in, in Kansas City. This is my story. And then it was, oh. oh, my gosh, we were the only Jews in our town 
in yes. Montana. This is my yes. story. And if somebody yes. says, we were the only Latinos, you know, you know, and it, 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 yes. it really resonated on that level. Right, so, right. So that's how the, how the book came about. And what's fascinating, too, and what's really gratifying about the book is that it's, it's, it's required reading. In, in a yeah. number of high schools and colleges across the country, there are colleges that no teach way. Books, which is which which boggles the mind. I mean, I'll yeah. see letters from kids, and you know, I'll, I'll see uh, a final exams. There are a, lot, a couple of online final exams, and to look at final exams and look at like stories about <laughs> stories of questions that are about my life on somebody's yeah. terms. It, you know, yeah, it, 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 you're like, wait a minute, I want surreal. to see what the answer to that is. I want to see what it's he surreal. put down because that could be better. Okay. No. Cool. Well, Brian, that is that is amazing. And you know what? That's so true when you start to connect with people. And I like, tell me again where you got that quote, today's pain is tomorrow's masterpiece. Where did you get that quote? I, I can't remember. You know what? I don't remember where it came from now. I, I, okay. so I read a lot of motivational things. Right. I, I, I collect quotes. You know, I'll yes. say something or, I'll, or someone will say something and not realize how profound it is. And it was something that I heard and I jotted down some, from somewhere and I, and I don't remember where I got it. But that's kind of my right. mantra. Yeah, today's famous, tomorrow's masterpiece. You know, I've, I've, I've subsequently done three more uh, solo shows, including The Waiting Period, which we'll talk about, which is the GoFundMe. And, right. uh, and, you know, every, every one of them, uh, is, is, is a, a story that, 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 that comes from pain that I have been able to turn into something that, that I've, I've been very fortunate on four for four as far as audiences and critics you know, are, are concerned right, with, right. Uh, with, with my work. And I think that it coincides so well with the, the message that, that I'm trying to bring to people, that people feel so alone when they're going through something. They feel so alone. They feel as though certainly they must be the only person, and they are the only person because they are who they are, and their experience, although might be similar and there might be a lot of circumstances that are the same, will always be unique because it's unique to them. But, right. you know, in my well, case you- as well, I know with when I uh, – and I love, I love when you talked about the sequence of how people fell into your path because that I love to see how – you know, the things work, how the serendipity works and how people are put into people's paths to make dreams right. come true. And, and, and I love when, when you're just happen to be blah, 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 fill in the blank. And then this person comes into your life and then that person oh, yeah. helps you. And that's what it's all about. And that's the message of how we are really put on this earth to help each other, to promote each other, to comfort each other. And, um, I, I just think that, um, Everything that you said, I, every time I listen to you, I'm just shaking my head. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's exactly how it works. That's, well, I mean, even my did, brother introducing me to you. I mean, there you go. Here's, here's a great quote, you know, going back to Norman Lear. Um, you know, Norman just wrote, wrote uh, released his, his autobiography. And yes. there's a quote in, in his book that I jotted down. I, I walked into my bathroom. My bathroom, I have, uh, I, I have post-its on my mirror. That when I find a great quote, I will I'll, I'll write it on the post and put it on my mirror so that so that I can you know see it so that I can remember. And and one of the things that he said in his book, and I jotted this down, and it goes right to right in line what we're talking about. He says, as long as we are persistent in our pursuit of our deepest destiny, we will continue to grow. We cannot choose the day or time when when we will fully bloom. It happens at its own time. And the other quote is at the moment of commitment, the whole universe conspires to assure your success. 
Mm. And, and that's how the right people will come into your life when you decide that you're going to do something, you know. Um, and again, going back to the book, on my Sunday list, number two was to write a book. That mm-hmm, was the number mm-hmm. two thing on my, on my list. And I didn't know, you know, my, my, I'd always wanted to write crime fiction. And I thought mm-hmm. that would be my first book, but that's not what it worked mm-hmm. out. But, it, you know, it yeah. was once I wrote it down, I was committed to it. And, and all of the pieces fell into place. So going back to what right. we were saying about how you know how it's everybody's individual story. Um, genuine has his to date. I, I performed it in thirty cities, um, thirty plus cities around the country, and uh, it, it had a runoff of a hundred performances off Broadway. And when I was off Broadway, I, I was you know like most of the performances I do. After the show, I will come out and uh, you know as people are leaving, I'll shake shake everyone's hand and thank people for coming. And in New York. Um, I, I would shake hands with people, and they would say to me, "Thank you. I, I really like the show." I was at Auschwitz. I was oh. at Bergen Belsen. I was at, oh. uh, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I, I, I'm a Holocaust survivor. So, in this case, I mean, like every night, there were like several of them. Right. To, to, to my knowledge, up to that point, I had never met a survivor up to up to that point. To my knowledge, right, anyway. right. So, so right. one night, I asked the guy. He introduced himself. Said he, he been at Auschwitz, and I said. Why are so many survivors coming to this play? What, you know, what are they getting from this? What are they relating to? And what he said to me was fascinating. He said, he said, survivors, Holocaust survivors live in a world full of people. He goes, they could be standing on Madison Avenue in Manhattan at 12 o'clock when there are literally a million people on the street, yet they'll feel like they're all alone because you can't get it because you weren't there. And, oh. and they did something about the story of this, this, isolated little, this isolated little boy who has no safe haven at home, you know, because my father was abusive, which is why we ran to San Leandro anyway to get away from him. You know, he, he, he tried to strangle me to the point, he, he did strangle me to the point where I was unconscious at eight years <laughs> old because I, I looked at him the wrong way. Um, right. You know, so I have no safe haven at home. I have no safe haven on the street because this, this town was so... Hostile, you know. I, I write about mm-hmm. my first experience, my very first day in town. I'm I'm walking. I'm eight years old. I'm walking to the park. My mother tells me there's a park nearby. Why don't I go and try to make some friends? So I have my baseball bat, my ball. I'm walking down the street, and these these high school kids pull up and they 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 call me the N word and they chase me, uh, and I run and I see a police officer. So I run to this cop, and uh, I tell the cop these kids are trying to beat me up, and all he wants to know is what am I doing there. You know, I don't mm-hmm. belong there. Why am I there? And I tell him where I live. He puts me in there. He frisks me. He searches me. I'm, I'm eight. He, he makes me mm-hmm. raise my arms. He frisks me, takes my bat, drives me home to my mother, tells my mother that I've been using the bat as a weapon. And it's a <gasps> felony. And she, and she better keep a closer eye on me. So I'm not safe at home. I'm not safe out. I'm not safe on the street doing something as innocuous as, you know, Christmas shopping. I'm 10 years old. Right. And I'm, being followed, I'm being followed from aisle to aisle by the manager. Of, 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 of the store while I'm Christian. So, so they, so they relate, they relate to that, to that, that isolation, you know, so the, mm-hmm. that lonely, isolated little boy, they relate to it because, you know, it's an experience that, you know, you know, they, they felt a kinship. So we, right. we all, you know, at some point we're all there at some point. Right. We're all, we all have an experience that nobody else can really get because they weren't there. However, the fact that we all have that experience means there's a universality. Right, right. There, there is a community of, of uniqueness and, and exactly. I know that, and I love how, you know, your, oh, I, I love that quote about persistence because I know, and, and, and it sounds as though 
this is kind of what you've done, where I'm going to be a stand-up comic, or I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. But when you finally decided, I have to write this story, I'm going to write this play, and then and then someone suggests that this be turned into a book, there's your piece of ground, there's your your place of commitment, rather. You're that that's your place of commitment, and that's changed your whole world. I mean, how, compare compare your book, not a genuine black man, to your your life as a stand-up comic. Which one? Uh, I mean, one had to one had to proceed, you know, because that's what got you to where you were. But right. that that piece of ground or that 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 uh, place of commitment was, I'm going to write this. I'm going to do this. You know, exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. Well, and you know, I want to talk a little bit about your GoFundMe. And the fact that you have this, I tell you, as a mother, I love stories of strong mothers. And I had a strong mother. I had a strong grandmother. You know, um, you know, again, growing, growing up just south of Chicago, I had a grandmother who had eight children. I don't think she wanted eight children, you know, but back in 1930, that's what you did, you know. And, um, and, and I'm sure that I could probably idealize this woman. I will idealize her because she's my grandma. Um, but I love stories of strong women. And so talk about how your mother had the strength to take what, what, there's, there were five in your family? How many children? Uh, so there were five altogether. Yeah, me and four young yeah. sisters. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, my my mother and grandmother are are, are very big parts of of it. It is, it, the story. Is so it's it's so in, involved and intricate. Uh, I can only right. give you the, the the broad strokes. But right. uh, the themes, you know, the, the domestic violence theme, of course. And there is one of the major themes in the book is housing discrimination because again, this city. Yeah. Uh, and I still live in San Leandro, by the way. And I talk to you. Oh, about, that's I, I still live in great. town. Great. Better, better part of town is still in town. And today. Today, San Leandro is one of the most diverse cities in the country. Uh, when when uh-huh. you look, one of the top ten, according to the last census, one of the top ten most diverse cities in the country, because um, you know, as you look at the at the percentages across, if you look at the, the national demographics of what percentage of, of America is white, what percentage is African American, what percentage is Asian, what percentage is Latino, San Leandro mirrors that. San Leandro today mirrors that. But at the time, you know, as I said, it was a white flight destination, and there was redlining going on. So where we moved to was my mother found this uh, apartment in this 100-unit apartment complex. And to this day, I, I do not know how she got us into that complex. Um, I do know that uh, within two weeks after we were there, the, uh, the manager uh, was gone. And the, the owner of, of, the, the, of the apartment complex owned a lot of, uh, a lot of rental properties uh, throughout the East Bay, throughout the, 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 uh, the, the East Bay part of the Bay Area. And his, let's just say that his views on race were well known. So it's yeah. my supposition that what happened was is that, that this was kind of a screw you to the owner where, where this manager said, oh, uh, here's my two weeks notice. By the way, red and the blacks, bye. Oh, uh, my gosh. Yeah. So what happened was is that he spent, you know, my mother ended up having to battle. My mother ended up having to battle this, this, this single African-American mother with all these children had to battle this wealthy white landowner. Uh, they, they did all these things to try to get us out. You know, where they uh, a sewer at one point a sewer pipe burst under our apartment, so the place reeked like garbage for like days. Nobody else's <sighs> apartment, just ours. Uh, there were like four times that the front doorknob was bashed in with a crowbar, and you know the police would say, "Oh, it looks like somebody's trying to burglarize here. You know, it might not be safe here. You might want to move someplace else." So all these things go on, and finally they tried to evict us by saying that we had six in our family, and that that was too many for a three-bedroom apartment. So my mother sued. My mother sued this, this, you know, this wealthy white landowner. Wow. Uh, she, 
that's what about my mom. You to understand my mom's uh, story. It's my grandmother uh, was raised in, in Jim Crow Birmingham, and my mother was born there in 1942. And in 1945, they they moved the entire family, my grandma, her all her brothers and sisters, her parents. They moved. They were part of that African American Northern migration where they moved from mm-hmm. the South to to the North, and they moved to. Uh, Akron, Ohio, so that my uncles could get jobs uh, at the in the rubber plants, the Goodyear mm-hmm. and Goodrich, uh, in the tire in the tire factories. And uh, um, uh, anyway, so so uh, so what happened was is that my my grandmother was a single mother as well, and mm-hmm. and uh, and so my mom spent a lot of time by herself. Um, and she was a voracious reader, and mm. and she basically invented herself. She 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 you know she. She reinvented herself as as a as a as a, a teenager that carried over into her life. Um, she, you know, in my house growing up, if we said the word "ain't," we may as well have said the F word as far as she was concerned. <laughs> right, sure. right. Yeah, I mean that's how uh, my mother was. Yeah. What black folks call my mother was what black people call stiddy. She she, oh. she put on airs. She oh um, yeah. She was born she was born in Birmingham, but she would tell people she was from Providence, Rhode Island, because she was <laughs> That's what she said. She's born in Providence. And she, my mother never said put in Rhode Island in her life. But yeah. <laughs> that's, what she, that's what it is that she would, would tell people. So she was always, you know, um, I, I guess maybe social climbing is, is is the right phrase. She had an idea about how she wanted her life to be and how she wanted her children children's lives to be and the things she wanted right. involved in art, art and music and, and, and education and all of all of these things. So um, and she was very strong and she she was very, very, very proud. Um, I lost her. We lost her when I was 14 years old, and you know that's all in the story in the book. Um, yeah. she, she died when she she died when I was of sarcoidosis, which is a, a lung disease that primarily affects African American women. It is the disease. It's the disease that Bernie Mac died from. The comedian oh, Bernie Mac died from sarcoidosis. Right. So, um, so in now, Grandma, by contrast, Grandma was the opposite. You know, Grandma was you know was no nonsense. You know, told it like it was, whether you wanted to hear it or not. You know, stubborn as a mule. Um, there's a story I tell. There's a family story we laugh about, and it, this is the, this is the God's honest truth. When, when 19, Grandma was was a very big fan of the Jack Parr Tonight Show. I don't know if you're old enough to remember oh. Jack Parr. It's before Parr was before I was born, but she loved yeah. Jack Parr. So October 1962, Jack Parr retires or, or quits the Tonight Show, and Johnny Carson takes over. The very first episode of, the, of Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Grandma. Uh, uh, sits in front of the TV and says, I got to see this because I don't believe he's going to make it. <laughs> okay. So we, so we, so we teased her about this for years. Okay. Flash forward 30 years to, uh, to, uh, to 1992. Carson is doing his last performance, his last show in 1992. Grandma stood in front of the TV and said, see, <laughs> I knew he wasn't going to make it. <laughs> so, oh, that's so that, amazing. So they had this whole this dynamic, you know, where my mother would, right. would you know would blow up these balloons and grandma would stick pins in them, you know, to bring her, yeah. to bring her back down to earth. But yeah. they were both very, very they were both very, very strong women. I I never would have made it without without either one of them. Right. But you lost your mother and then you had, you know, uh, a lot of catastrophes, catastrophes all at the same time. So let's talk let's let's begin the segue into where your waiting period started yes. and the story behind your waiting period. 
Okay, well, here's where the waiting period came from. There is there is a scene in in the in genuine where, where I throughout throughout genuine throughout the the, the story the, the story and not a genuine black man uh, flashes back forth between two timelines. Uh, eight years old, moving to San Leandro, and all of that, all, all of the things we went through, and and me as an adult, where uh, I'm, you know, I was I was for five years the host of the morning show for the Fox affiliate here in San Francisco. You know, I'm I'm you know opening for all of these famous people I told you about. I do comedy; all mm-hmm. these things are going great. But I'm 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 having these breakdowns. I'm I'm driving in into you know to do to do my television show, and I had to pull off to the side of the road because I'd be crying and I couldn't understand why and what was going on. I, I didn't know. You know why I was why I I was having these, you know these these just fits of waves of sadness. You know, so so what culminates in, in, in genuine um, is in the in the at the end of the first act is there was a part in 1992 where I, I sat you know all this stuff came back to me all at one time and what I realized is that it, at the time that all this stuff's going on it's because I have reached the age that my mother was and my mother died. My mother was 35 years old when she died, and I wow. That age, and there's something, and I've talked to people after, subsequently who say when you lose a parent, um, especially at a young age, there's some kind of survivor's guilt almost that sets yep. in when you when you reach that age. Yep. So I w- was so distraught at this point that that I I went into my garage. I had this I had this this, uh, this fancy little sports car, this little uh, 1999 Mazda Miata, and I I went in the garage and let the top down, and I started the motor. And I closed all doors and I started the motor and, and just laid back and listened to music and closed my eyes. And the only reason I'm here today is because uh, a, a neighbor heard music blaring in the garage and called the police because she thought something might be, that, you know, there might be a burglary or something going on. And that's the only reason I'm, I'm, I'm here today. Wow. So, so, that, so that theme of depression is touched on in genuine. And one of the critics had, had written that um, that he wished that that I had been able to to talk more about depression and had been able mm-hmm. to, but it was just not, it genuine. It's a two-hour play, and there was there was just no right. there was no room to really really elaborate on it. So I thought right. about that for a while. So 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 flash forward to 2008, and in 2008, a you know a, a series of, of, of catastrophes. I should mention too that after the garage incident, I was officially diagnosed with depression. And, okay. and uh, I, I'd never been diagnosed with it before. And, you know, I mean, I realize now I've been, I've, I've suffered my, literally my whole life. And, you know, right. there's no name for it. You know, there's no name for it when I was a kid growing up in the 70s. There was no, no name for it. So, so 2008, uh, I, I, I go through a terrible bout. Um, my, my grandmother dies suddenly. You know, I'm on the air doing my radio show. I get a text from my sister saying, you got to get here right away. Grandma's had a stroke. And three days later, uh. she was gone. And this was not unexpected. Then two, literally two weeks after that, my wife takes off. I had remarried at this point. I, I had remarried and I thought things were going well. And she just decided she didn't want to be married and didn't want to be a mother of three anymore and takes off. Then I get into a car accident in the Miata and I total the Miata in the car crash. And um, I thought I was fine, you know, because that's guys. You know, they say married men look right. like single men do. The reason married men live longer is because wives make you go to the doctor. You know, because yeah. yeah. wives, wives will make you go to the doctor. And and I didn't go to the doctor after this car accident. You know, in fact, I went and I ran six miles that, that evening. And oh, so my I started gosh. Getting tingling. Yeah, I, I did it one on a six-mile run. So I started getting these tingling in my hands, my feet, my chest, and I started seizing up, seizing up. And finally, I go to the doctor. They do an MRI, and they said, oh, my God, you have a disc in your neck that's pressed against the spinal column, and uh, you might be a quadriplegic. 
You know, <gasps> it, it, they, said, they said the day that I, I jogged, if I had tripped, I would have been a quadriplegic. Mm. If I tripped, I'd have never gotten up again. Right. So, so, I, so I had to go to the hospital for surgery, and they, they had to cut my throat, go into my throat, take out the disc, and then they, they put me in a neck brace, and they, you know, they said they, they weren't sure how much of my mobility I was going to be able to get back. Uh, they didn't know if it, they, you know, they didn't know. So, yeah. so I spent, so I spent three months on the couch in a neck brace, you know, depressed again, again, grandma's passed away, wife's taken off, had this accident. Now I'm not sure I'm going to walk again or how much I'm going to be able to walk again. You know, right. a, a three, so I'm, I'm in this deep, 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 deep depression. And the other thing that they didn't warn me about is, and, and your listeners should know this, I'll bet you probably don't even know this is that when you undergo surgery and you have anesthetic, the anesthetic, yep. can, the anesthetic can stay in your body for a couple of months. And the anesthetic yep. can also be a catalyst for depression. Yep, so I've seen it. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, they didn't yeah. warn me about that, and I had no idea. So I'm in this horrible, horrible funk, and I decided that was it. I decided I was going to end it, you know. So I, I bought a, uh, a gun. I bought a, a, 32, a 32 Beretta Tomcat from a gun store. Now, in the state of California, there is a 10-day waiting period uh, between the time that you purchase a gun to when you can take possession of it. So during that 10 days, I had an epiphany that, that, that brought me back around that took me to the other side. I, I, I don't want to say what that is because right. uh, I'd like people to see the play, and, I, and I'm, I'm writing right. a novel based, based on the play. Uh, right. so, so after I did this, you know, I thought for the next after I came through the other side of that, I thought for a couple of years about what that critic had written about, you know, me talking more about depression. And then I thought maybe I should tell that story about the, about the 10 days. Then um, in, in, 20, uh, in 2012, 2011, a, uh, some good friends of mine had a neighbor, a 15-year-old kid, who was suffering with mental illness and depression. And one day he sends out five tweets to family and friends that just said, I love you. And he went oh. to the railroad tracks and laid down on the tracks in front of a train. This fifteen-year-old uh, kid. So I said, "Okay, that's it. I got to tell this story." Yeah. So um, I, I went in, but I, I was was reluctant for several reasons. I was reluctant because of the nature of the story. To, to my knowledge, nobody's ever done told a story this personal before on on this subject. Was one, and two was you know, not as anyone black man was such a just phenomenal hit that you know it was. Well, when's your next play? When's your next play? And, and right. there's, there's there's always some. There's some apprehension about your follow-up to a big hit because you know that everybody's waiting to trash it. As much right. as they love the first one, they've got their knives sharpened because they, they really want to take you down a peg with the next one. That's the reason right. Ben, Affleck, ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon never wrote another script together after Goodwill Hunting because they yeah. know that no matter how good it is, they said that they said no matter how good it is, they're going to just, the critics are going to destroy it because yeah, they're just true. going to. Cause so, so I was apprehensive for a lot of reasons, but I got to get with David Ford. He said, well, let's do it. So I wrote this play, The Waiting Period, telling, you know, the story. And, and uh, you know, I used the same Norman Lear rhythms, you know, really funny. And, you know, the humor is the spoonful of sugar, you know, that makes the medicine go down. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I didn't know how it was going to be received. And I was lucky again. It, it, it got raised. But aside from that, even, even more so, what, what the fascinating thing that happened was I had all of these people who suffer from depression who were thanking me for telling their story about what goes on in the minds of someone in a depressive bout and, mm-hmm. and, and, and why, you know, family members and, and people who are well-meaning don't get it. 
and why they'll sit there and they'll tell you, snap out of it. Come on, look at the sun shining. You know, or they tell you, don't you know how lucky you are? And, and you right. could be hungry and you could be homeless and you could be in Darfur and look at this mm-hmm. poor person here who had this horrible thing. And I'll look for, you know, and all that's irrelevant. You can't talk someone mm-hmm. out of a disease anymore. Right. You know, if you can't, you wouldn't tell somebody with cancer to snap out of it. You wouldn't tell somebody right. who, has, who has Lou Gehrig's disease that, hey, oh, you got Lou Gehrig's disease. But look at this person over here. You could be them. You know, right. snap out of it. Right. And, and, and so I would hear from, from people who suffer from depression who would, who would thank me for that. And I also heard from people who had family members who suffered who went, oh, thank you. Now we get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. My approach has been all wrong. Now I understand it. You know, right. it, it, it's literally saved people's lives. I mean, literally yeah. saved people's lives. People who yeah. were thinking about hurting themselves came and saw that show. And the message of the show is to tell somebody, you know, that if I can stand up here and I can spill my guts to strangers, you can tell somebody that you are having thoughts that are not in your best interest and not the best interest of your own well-being. Right. So I did the right. show for I did the show for a year and a half, and then after a year and a half, I had to stop it because in order for it to be real for the audience on the scenes where I'm, I'm in depression, I have to go there as an actor. And after a year mm-hmm. and a half of doing it, you know, six, seven, eight performances a week, I had to wow. stop. Yes. It sucked me in. Yes, I never thought about that. But yeah, you're yeah. reliving, you're reliving and reliving. Yeah. I've got to wow. go there for it to be real. So, right. so I stopped it and I, I went on, I wrote two other plays after that. And then last August, um, our, our friend in the Bay Area comedy community and our friend in the world community, Robin Williams committed suicide. Right. And when Robin, when Robin committed suicide, I was talking to my, my publicist, um, my publicist um, at, uh, at Sandy Friedman at Rogers and Cowan in Los Angeles. And Sandy had been Rock Hudson's um, publicist when Rock Hudson came public, went public with the fact that he was suffering from AIDS. Uh. And, and, and what Sandy said, Sandy said, Robin's death may do for depression what Rock Hudson did for AIDS. And that was, you know, before AIDS, you know, we, we you know, we didn't know, you know, we, yeah. you know, we, none of us knew anybody who had the disease. It was just right. a scary thing we saw in the news. Yes, 1984. I remember being at a, I remember being at a comedy club with your brother. And we, we, um, we did the show and then, uh, and after the show, we, um, we're back in the dressing room and your brother walks to the back and, run, and runs to the bathroom and starts washing his hands, just furiously washing his hands. And I go, Steve, what's going on? He goes, well, I just took hands with this guy, and he says that he's the, he is, is to date the, the longest living um, AIDS survivor. Longest living wow. survivor, longest li- living person who's been diagnosed with AIDS. And, and Steve's washing his hands. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, that's because we, we didn't know. Yeah. We, yeah, were, we didn't it was know. 1984. We didn't know. 1985. Yeah, right. We didn't know. And so when yeah. Rock Hudson, who we knew, you know, Rock Hudson had been in our homes with their middle and wife and with Dynasty, and you know, we knew Rock Hudson. This was somebody right. we knew, and it put a, it put a human face on it, and it educated us. And so Sandy mm-hmm. said that maybe Robin's death will do that for depression. And here's the funniest, right. literally the funniest man on the planet. Oh, and, yeah. You know, so I said, okay, yeah. I'm going to bring this show back. I said, I'm going to I'm going to bring I'm going to bring the waiting period back because it's time that we have this discussion in America, and we right. stigmatize this disease. Yeah, so and you know what? You're, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right, Brian. And and we've got about maybe about six or seven minutes left. And and I I'm so glad that you brought that up because sadly, sometimes that's what it takes. But honestly, um, when when that happened to Robin, you know, when things happen in the celebrity world, 
um, you go, oh, that's too bad. Oh, so-and-so's getting a divorce. Ah, oh, I never would have thought that would have happened. That's too bad. That's too bad. Or, oh, you know, so-and-so just passed away. Well, they were 95. That's too bad. But, but for some reason, and I know I've talked to a lot of people, Robin Williams' death hit me like a member of my own family had died. Yep. And the sadness, I, I couldn't believe I was as sad as I was for this loss. And, and then the thought, like you say, that it was that the depression that he was suffering that he could not find relief for made it even sadder. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And you're absolutely right. And what's ironic is even in my own community, people didn't, you know, don't talk a lot about depression or they're, you know, being a faith based, and a lot of people in my community have strong faith. And so they're, they're exactly what you're saying. There's always that, you know, well, have you prayed or have you counted your blessings or have you looked outside yourself or have you served others? Forget yourself and go to work and serve others. And so there's that mentality, which all of those things are good. And all of those things are tools that you can use. But the, mm-hmm. but as you say, you don't tell someone with diabetes to count their blessings and exactly. look how much worse it could be. You know, mm-hmm. um, you ask, you tell them to go get medical help that they need. Exactly. And and so it is exactly. it is opening people's eyes and they are starting to recognize that this is a chemical imbalance. This is a problem. This is not just a bad hair day. This is not just a, I broke up with my boyfriend. Those are, exactly. that's different. That's a different form of sadness or depression. So exactly. tell exactly. everyone about how your GoFundMe is working and how they can donate. Okay, so here's what we're doing. And that is, you know, I, I brought it back and I, I had been doing it at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco on, on, on Sundays. Uh, I started doing it last August. I brought it back last, uh, brought it back last September, a couple of weeks after Rob died. Just, I can do one day a week. I can't do seven performances a week, but I can no. do one day a week. And and again, you know, it's, it's really you know, the way it's been helping people, and especially young people. So I thought, you know, um, I, I performed it at a couple of colleges, and every college I, I, I performed where I performed the show, the I get I get uh, emails from from the administrators afterwards saying that they have a rush of students who will go to counseling or come and tell them uh. after seeing the show that that's where I am. Or I think about killing myself every single day, or or these kinds of things. And so there are a lot of young people. There's a, really, you know, people are not aware. There's an epidemic of suicide in in colleges right now, uh, in colleges and and in high schools. There there's an epidemic. Um, there is a school here in, in the in uh, in the Silicon Valley, which is a really high achieving school. You know, where if you have a 4.3 grade point average, you're not you're not going to be the valedictorian. Yeah, it's not good yeah, enough. you're a loser. I mean, yeah. And so they have all these kids who, and they're, most of them are choosing trains as the method of departure. They're laying down the railroad tracks. It's, it's awful. Wow. So I, thought, so I thought, you know what? In order to see this show, tickets are 30 to $100. The Marsh is a little nonprofit theater, and, you know, and they need the revenue from ticket sales in order to survive. And right. I, I thought, what I like to do is make this show available to people and to do it, for, to do it where the public doesn't have to pay for it. So the right. Marsh, and I brought the Marsh, I said, you know, we'd love to let you do that, but we can't. You know, we need the revenue in order right. to, to keep the lives on. So what we're doing is is I started a GoFundMe campaign along with the Marsh uh, to raise $150,000. And what the $150,000 will do, will basically buy every ticket for every performance next year, every Sunday from January to December, uh, for every single performance. And that way, we can let people come in and see the show for free. We can do outreach to, to young people and students, again, who can't afford that. 
and, and to come in and see it. We can talk to counselors, suicide prevention, who can refer people who the show will help. Marriage and family therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists who work with people who suffer from depression, they can send them, go and see this. You know, it'll, it'll help you. Take your family to go and see this so they get what it is you're dealing with they right can, now. Yeah, they can understand. Well, that's amazing. So if they just go on the GoFundMe site and type in uh, Brian well, Copeland, or what would be the easiest here's, way? Here's, here's the easiest way to do it. There are two ways to do it. The easiest way to do it is uh, go to, uh, to BrianCopeland.com. B-R-I-A-N-C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. Go to briancopeland.com. On the home page, in the lower left-hand corner, there is a link. There's a link. If you click the link, it'll take you right to the GoFundMe site. There's a video that's explaining exactly what it is that we're doing. A six-minute video explaining what we're doing. We've got some testimonials from people. Uh, A rock war vet who was suffering from PTSD, who was suicidal, and he saw the play, and and it, it, it gave him the courage to go and get help. So he's doing okay, and his family are doing all right. All, all these things are there, and uh, and and we ask people to contribute whatever you can. The Mars is a registered 501c3 nonprofit, so all donations are 100% tax deductible. Uh, started it three weeks ago, and as of right now, we're we're uh, just a hair like fifty dollars under twenty two thousand. Um, two hundred people have, have oh, I think two hundred five people have donated almost twenty two thousand dollars so far. That funds us all the way from for January and February of next month. So already we have two months that nobody will have to pay. I, I applaud that. There's so many things I'd love oh. to ask you, um, but anyway, have a great day. When are you coming to Portland? Um, you know, I have been in Portland in ages, but I would like to, I, I just did uh, the waiting period in Seattle, and uh, I'm looking for a theater in Portland where I can do it. I would, I would love to bring the show up there. All right. I, I would, would love, love that, to too. Let, let, let us know when that's going to happen. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, pleasure in my mind as, as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, that was amazing. I hope all of you uh, could feel Brian's message as well as listen to it. Please tell your friends. Uh, to go on briancopeland.com, uh, listen to his story, uh, donate to his GoFundMe, and let's get this message out about depression. And, and I, it's almost as, it, it seems to be an epidemic, uh, that's also affecting, you know, almost every family. And it's definitely something that a lot of my friends struggle with, that I have people in my own family that struggle with it. And so it's something that we definitely need to address. Have a wonderful day. Remember to go out and and help and serve those in your community that you can be a light in their life. You can be that heaven that they're looking for. And um, I hope you all have a great day. And we'll talk next Monday. Bye-bye.